Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So as we're looking at Acts 14, I, I want us to think about why we do this on Sundays. Why do we look at passages in the Bible and why don't we do like more kind of three-part series or those kinds of things? This is the word of God. And it was given to us the way that it is. And so the letters in the New Testament including Acts, were inspired by the Holy Spirit and given, even in the order that they're given, line by line. And so the Lord arranged that and gave that to the early church and to the churches for all time, and they read them. When they got a hold of one, Paul brought one or one of his servants brought one to that local church. They prized it, they treasured it, they read it, they memorized it, as they did with the Old Testament and so we are simply harnessing ourselves to, to that, that very practice. Like the early church, we read it, we study it, we treasure it, and we can't go wrong when we do that. Isn't that right? So if it's left to me or someone else on the preaching team and we're coming up with kind of thematic series, and I'm not uh, disregarding those. Those can be good things, but we want a steady diet of the word of God as it's given to the church, right? So there's a thought and prayer that goes behind this. And if we are studying it and praying it, asking God to transform us and help us obey it, then things happen. Does that make sense? So if I'm having a rough day, I'm having a rough week, but I am simply reading and explaining and walking the church through a text, then God's word does not go forth void. I mean, it always produces something. It always affects a transformation. It always kindles fire. It kindles faith. It builds. It heals. And so I, my job is to just simply walk us through something. Make sense? Because I know there's all kinds of different ways of doing it. And I had a conversation with someone this week, and we were talking about the political and the cultural. And I tell you, before it's over, you can end up you can preach this and, and do this, but I just want you to know at All Saints, we give ourselves to the word of God week after week, and then we can't go wrong, right? As long as we're saying, Lord, move it from head knowledge to heart knowledge and help us live it. But that really is the, the passion behind what we do, the aim. So we work through a, a, a book of the Bible now, I will say this, throughout the year, we sprinkle in, we've got a preaching team, and so at least 12 times during the year, you get to hear from other people, and they usually do something thematic or maybe pull in another text. That's wonderful. So we've got a team, and we're trying to deepen that, that bench. But what we've been doing is working through a book of the Bible. And some of you may say, are we going to finish this before Christ returns? 
But think about the advantage, you know, in a culture where we're moving from one thing to another, a millisecond here. You can't get the book of Acts in three weeks or three months. I mean, we want to read it and see the full message, the full import and impact of the book in our hearts in this local church. And then we actually accomplish something. Make sense? We're looking at the history of God's work in the church and the mission, and it takes deeper root in us as we linger with it, right? Lots of ways to do it, but that's what we're choosing to do. And we'll probably do shorter books in the future. Amen? So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to speak to us, to transform us, to cause our hearts to burn with truth this morning. We thank you that the word brings us to you, Lord Jesus. So we ask for that this morning, that these words of Scripture would bring us into living contact with you. You would speak to us. You would continue to work among us. In your name, amen. So we are looking at the book of Acts, and we're seeing that this is about God's kingdom mission for the church. It's God's mission God is a missional God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we get to cooperate. We get to come alongside as servants of Jesus, as the bride of Christ, the church of God, and participate in what God's doing in our region, in our city, in our country, across the world. And there's some major shifts that are happening in the book while it's we're looking at chapter 13, chapter 14. We've seen that the apostle Peter has been the key figure, and now the baton is passing to Saul, also known as Paul, and he's going to be the central figure from here on out. We're seeing that Paul and Barnabas together are ministering, but we'll see Peter kind of recede into the background a little bit. He'll come up later again, even in the council at Jerusalem in chapter 15. So there's a transition from Peter to Paul, a transition from the gospel going to the Jews, to the Gentiles and to the rest of the world. And so this is a key moment in the book. It's kind of a pivot here. Last week we looked at chapter 13 and we saw Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey. And let's put a map up here. Helps those of us that are visual. You can see I've got the circle on the far right, and I just, I know that's a lot of little dots there, but I want you to see there are nine places, stopping points, destination on this first missionary journey, and there's going to be three. It's going to be three missionary journeys, and I want us to just appreciate in the first century the time, the energy, the prayer, the effort that went into taking the gospel from Syria and Antioch, number one there that circled to the island of Cyprus, up there into the coastal region, Pergia, up to Pisidian Antioch, number six, which is where we were last week. And now we're going to see Paul and Barnabas hang a right and move a little bit southward and go into Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And then they're going to turn around and retrace their steps all the way back through each of these cities. And we'll get back to that in just a minute, but this is a marvelous moment in our family history. This is the church going from a small little movement, closely connected with Judaism, kind of a early Jesus movement, deeply connected, and now it's going to increasingly take on its own kind of independent 
life. It will always be Jewish. It will always be connected to the Jewish faith and the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish Savior, right? So in some sense, I mean, we, we are spiritually Jewish because Jesus is Jewish. But what begins to happen is the expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world. It's a marvelous thing. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a few parts of this journey or this trek into Asia Minor and which is going to total a thousand miles. That whole journey is 1,000 miles in the ancient world, hiking it over mountains, jumping on boats, pretty exciting stuff. But let's look at verses one through seven, and we're going to see a few things about their adventure in Iconium, and then in Lystra and another city named Derby. We're going to see a healing. We're going to see what their message is and some of their methods. All right, beginning it. Verse 1, I'm just going to read 1 through 7. The same thing occurred in Iconium, where Paul and Barnabas, and the same thing meaning referencing from 13, they go to the synagogue first. Paul and Barnabas went into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who testified to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done through them. But the residents of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, The apostles learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued proclaiming the good news. This is the word of God. So we see in these first seven verses here some adventuresome things that are happening in Iconium. They're preaching the word. God is performing signs and wonders and miracles through them. And they are traveling a well-known Roman commercial road called the Royal Road into this place. Iconium was an ancient strategic city in the central part of modern-day Konya in Turkey. It's about 80 miles from Pisidian Antioch. They're up about 3,400 square feet on a high plateau. And now they're in another city that's a melting pot, culturally mixed, You've got Greeks and Jews and Roman colonists all together, and they go where? Into the synagogue. And they speak with the folks there, and it seemed to be going well. And then look at verse 2. Some of the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, those who were hearing the gospel, and poisoned their minds against the brothers just feeling prompted here, just like when you're reading the Gospels, you have to be careful. This is not anti-Semitic. It's not anti-Semitic. It's uh, anti-resistance to God and the Gospel and the good news of Jesus. So they happen to be from the Jewish faith, and this is where you have to guard against, especially when you're reading the Gospels, to be careful of some people taking the scriptures and being anti-Semitic. You hear me on that? Yeah, it's, really, it's not. These people were resisting. They weren't seeing the Messiah. Many did, many didn't, right? So 
these unbelieving Jews are poisoning the minds and turning them against Paul and Barnabas, much like we saw Elymas, that magician, who was poisoning the mind of the proconsul and trying to turn him from the faith. The same thing is happening here. And look at verse 3. It's kind of humorous. We're seeing at times that Luke has a good sense of humor. And so these unbelieving Jews are stirring up trouble and poisoning the minds. And then look at verse 3. How does it start? So they decided to stay there for a while. It's basically Luke saying, in light of this, in the face of growing persecution, they decided to stay and fulfill their mission there. It's rather beautiful. Do we have that kind of persistence? Um, It's also interesting to note here that the good news is mentioned five times in this text alone, in this chapter. The good news, the gospel is mentioned five times and then nine times it's mentioning preaching and sharing and teaching. So the word of God pervades this whole text here, the whole passage is about the power of the word of God spreading like fire into the Gentile world. Look at verse 4. We can see as they're sharing and actually this is important. Look at verse 3, the end of verse 3. They're preaching the word, the gospel, and God is testifying. God is confirming that the message is true. How? How? By granting signs and wonders to be done. And then what's the word there? To be done through them. Which Luke is letting us know that they are not deciding, hey, let's go do some signs and wonders. This is our power, our strength, our ability. This is them in relationship and in submission to the Lord Jesus and to the Father. And God decides to do signs and wonders through them. So, Lord, we avail ourselves to you for you to do signs and wonders and miracles through us, just as you did the early church. Look at verse 4. The residents of the city were divided because, friends, that's what happens when the word of the gospel truly comes and when the Lord confirms that in miraculous ways that only he can, it divides people. Do you remember what Jesus said? In the Gospels, he says in Matthew 10, at verse 34 through 36, he said, I came to bring a sword. Actually, people will respond to me and a sword will cut and divide. Some will line up with me, some will accept me and my lordship, and others will turn against me. And so they're seeing that in their very message, the word of truth is going forward. Look at verses 5 through 7. We're seeing here that an attempt was made by Gentiles and Jews. So there we learn that it's not an anti-Semitic text. There's some hooligans among the, the Gentiles as well with their rulers, and they are going to mistreat and stone them. But the apostles learned of it. Maybe they learned of it by revelation. Maybe someone leaked it out. We're not sure. And it's only then that they decide to go to Lystra and Derby. Look at the second part of the text at verse 8. I'm going to read this. There's a healing at Lystra. And again, this is a, 
an adventure that they're on. It's difficult to cover everything, but there's some key moments that we're looking at. Let's read 8 through 13. There's a healing as they enter into Lystra. In Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Strange, isn't it? Look at verse 12. Barnabas they called Zeus, the chief god, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, before they knew it, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice to them. This is foreign to us, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine rolling into a place and you share the gospel and God works a miracle and the next thing, the town is ready to offer sacrifice to you because you are one of the deities who's come down. Strange, but there's some wisdom in here that we're going to see. This miracle that happens, when else can you think of a paralyzed person being healed? Christ, right? We saw it in Luke 5. If you've read the Gospel of Luke, Luke 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. And then if you remember way back to Acts 3, who else heals? The Lord uses them to heal someone. The Apostle Peter, Acts 3. So this is another occasion because there were lots of crippled people in the ancient world. There was no treatment, and so the city would have been filled with different crippled people that were known. And the Lord decided that he would work a sign and a wonder through them. And so now we get to see the superstition of this crowd. They're lost. They're pagan. And so watching this miracle, they're remembering one of the myths that was told oftentimes in their region, and this is interesting. It gives us some perspective here. We know this from an ancient writing. A guy named Ovid wrote down a story that Zeus and Hermes came to this town, and the whole town didn't recognize them. Again, this is an ancient myth, a fable, and because there were only two people in that town who welcomed Zeus and Hermes into their home, an older couple, Zeus and Hermes decided to flood the town and kill everybody. And then they preserved that couple. And so you can imagine the superstition. You've got two people show up, a supernatural event occurs, and all of a sudden they are super hospitable. (laughs) They're like, hey, we learned from Ovid that myth, that legend, and it ain't happening to me. I'm certainly going to be hospitable to these guys beyond hospitable. Let's offer sacrifice to them. Just in case it is, in fact, Zeus and Hermes here. And so before they know it, the priest is there ready to offer a sacrifice. Look at verses 14 through 18. We'll see how they respond. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, while this was developing, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals 
We're mere men just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to follow their own ways, yet God has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So if you see the starting point here is different than in the previous chapter. In 13, they went into the synagogue and they opened the word of God and they began to preach the gospel. Here it's a different starting point. They're in a town where the knowledge of the scriptures isn't there. And so the starting point is the book of nature. And they're looking around and Paul is saying, hey, look at the book of nature. God provides a witness. He takes care of you. He takes care of people. And we want you to know the true and living God, not Zeus who came and allegedly flooded your city. But even with these words at verse 18, they wanted to offer sacrifice. Now, friends, I was looking at this this week and just scratching my head and saying, this is odd. Is it not? This is an odd text, isn't it? Why in the world would they do this? But I think that there are some different layers of wisdom here. There's missionary wisdom. And we see them, if you're interested in missionary work and doing missions overseas, you get to see the greatest missionaries ever, giving us an example for all time. How did they do it? They knew their audience. They knew the people. And at one moment, they're opening the scriptures and they're using that as common ground if they have knowledge of that. But here, they didn't have that. So they're doing much what David did in Psalm 19. David would say, look at the stars. Look at, there has to be a creator. And so that's what they're doing here. They give us some missionary insight and wisdom. But there's also some proverbial wisdom like the wisdom from a proverb, and that is don't follow or trust the crowd. Don't follow the crowd, nor idolize people. I want this to hit home with us for a moment here. Do we idolize people? Do we go with the crowd? You see here in the text, they're ready. They're worshiping them. They're about to offer sacrifice, and then it turns real quick from worship to hatred. And friends, that is how human nature is. And I hate to say this, but the general trend can be the same in the church, right? We worship, we idolize, we say that person, that man, that woman, they're amazing, I am beginning to respect them maybe close to how I respect Jesus. And the Lord says, I'm not going to have that. So I want us to think about today, do you have someone in your mind that maybe you've elevated? Could be someone you don't even know. Could be their teaching, could be a podcast, could be books that you read. That's an ordinary person. And they are broken and fallen and they're sinners just like you and me. 
And I want to say, as your pastor, there's no elevating around here. (laughs) I will quickly jump down if anyone thinks that I'm different or that I'm in some kind of unique category. I am a saint and a sinner. And I try to very openly share my weaknesses with you. I've got some strengths, but I've got weaknesses as well. And I think that's healthy leadership, that all the pastoral staff here can let it rip with their strengths and their gifts, but at the same time model weakness and say, you know what, we deal with the same sins everybody else does. We have to fight and battle in the thought life. We have to fight and battle addiction if that's in our past. And so we're all together in this. Amen? Isn't that right? And so that is tucked away in here. And I'm sure you can think of example after example. I've got friends that I watched and mentors who are just dang near worshipped in the church and then something happens to them. Maybe they become untouchable or they don't have a place anymore where they can go and in weakness confess sin. They're elevated above the rest of the church and then something happens and the church turns on them and before it's over they move from the pedestal to the garbage can and the Lord doesn't want that. Amen. So we want to be a church where we all are in battle together. We're all serving together and the Lord himself is the only one who gets this kind of respect. Amen? And we are really, we're not just theorizing about that. We really mean it. We look for ways, if you're in leadership, to undermine that, to pull the plug, to pull the rug out from underneath that. Look at 19 through 23. I think this is where we'll kind of camp as we end here. 19 through 23, it's really part of the crux of the passage. It's about enduring persecution. The Jews came from Antioch, and that's Syrian Antioch and Iconium, and won over the crowds. And they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Crazy, huh? We want to offer sacrifice to you, and now we want to stone you and kill you. Supposing that he was dead, they left him. But when the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the city. The next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had proclaimed the good news to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, then to Iconium, and to Antioch, retracing their steps. And there they strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, It is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. And after they had appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had come to believe. So this section is about enduring persecution. The Jews came all the way, and I misspoke. It's from Antioch of Pisidia, about 80 miles away, and they won over the crowds, and they stoned Paul. They stoned him so good, they dragged him outside the city, and they left him to die. So we know it was pretty brutal. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul catalogs a number of things like this that happened to him, and he references this. Imagine that. So about eight years earlier, Paul had been on the giving end of this. Do you remember? 
the Jewish leaders laid their garments at his feet when Stephen was getting stoned. So just maybe, we don't know, but maybe Paul was reflecting on the fate of Stephen that he had been a part of back in chapter 7 and his role while that was happening and how Christ called him to suffer. You remember in Acts 9 when he was called, Jesus said, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name. And all of that went deep into his heart. And the disciples surrounded him. We know he wasn't dead because Luke would have said he was raised from the dead. But when they surrounded him, what do you think they were doing? They were praying, praying earnestly. Lord, raise him up. Heal him. Get him up so he can continue. And they prayed for him, and then Paul got up. As I read this multiple times this summer, I mean this summer, this week, wow. Um, I'm already thinking about summer. I want to put this slide up because this is the image of the Apostle Paul that I had right there, Rocky Balboa. You know, I mean, this guy is getting beat near death, dragged outside the city, and he's crawling back up. And he's like, okay, we going back in that town? Let's go back in that town, go through, and we are upward and onward. This guy is unstoppable. The love, the grace, the forgiveness of Jesus entered his heart and washed over him and changed him. And he was one of those guys, much forgiven, much love, right? Much forgiven, where that flows, much forgiveness, oftentimes there is much love. So I want us to think about how can we get that same kind of love and fire and mercy in our hearts as a church? Do you want to be unstoppable? I certainly do. Do you feel unstoppable right now, like you're ready to go? Maybe some of you do. I, I don't. I'm, I'm kind of on my way toward unstoppableness. But that's, I want to be unstoppable, and I think you do too. And so that same love and fire and forgiveness and mercy that washed over Paul can wash over you as well. And I call it a waterfall. You've got to get under the waterfall every day. You've got to open the book. You've got to open the scriptures and pray and let the Lord remind you how much he loves you, how much he's forgiven you, and the destiny that you have in him. And he can make us an unstoppable local church. That's what we want. We want the same unstoppable fire in us. Paul Balboa. Paul Rocky Balboa, right? Verses 24 to 28. Essentially, they're returning to Syrian Antioch. They're going back. They're retracing their steps. Why would they retrace their steps? Why would they go and appoint elders in these churches? Paul wasn't just out for converts. He was out for disciples. He wanted to see people become lifelong followers of Jesus and he came through town, and it may have been six months, may have been nine months, may have been a year later. He would swing back through and check on them and make sure that leadership was in place like the elders. And he left behind, we're going to see, over 14 churches. And so there's a model here 
that he's giving the church for all time. And the successful missionaries for the next 2,000 years followed Paul's model. The way they share the gospel, the way that they see converts become disciples, and then those disciples becoming leaders in the church, and then visiting them and trusting that the Holy Spirit would fill them. He left. Paul didn't set up camp in town and say, okay, this i got to be here and i got to sit on top of the church. He left because he trusted the work of the Holy Spirit to raise them up and be a powerful church. Let's end with this. Why don't we stand? The message that they brought at verse 22 as they were making disciples and encouraging them is this. Why don't we read this together? Let's put that up where they can, we can read the end of verse 22 together. Because this is one of the key messages in the whole text. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to follow in the steps of Paul and Barnabas and the others, this is the message for us that we must embrace. You see that at the end of verse 22. And let's read this together. It is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. And friends, we could talk about that and unpack that. We will enter the kingdom of God. What they're saying is that every Christian is on the pathway. You will see the Lord face to face. You will enter the kingdom of God in all its fullness. You will see the king 1 John 3 says that we'll see him as he is and we'll be transformed into his likeness. That glorious day is coming and we cling to it. But the pathway that we take is a tough one. And it is filled with hardships. But we don't have to do it alone. We have each other and we have the Lord. Amen? So it is through many persecutions or tribulations that we are on our way to enter the kingdom of God. So Lord, we love you. We do say that you're our king. We thank you that one day we will see you face to face and be like you. And we pray that you would fill us with the same fire, the same mercy, the same unstoppable nature that these guys had. Put that in us as a local church, Lord, for your glory. Amen.